Well, we'll get going. Thank you so much again for, for those of you who are able to be here with us this morning. My name is Raymond. Let's get into this very quickly. A couple of household items. And if you would, you can just pre-mark your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 25 through 37, and the book of Acts chapter 4 will be in verses 32 to 37 there, and it's up on the screen for you as well. So Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just read this, actually I'm going to read through Luke chapter 10 and then right through Acts chapter 4, Um, and after that I'll tell you the rest of what we want to do. Um. Let me just say this, uh, usually, how many of you have been here for the past three months? You can put your hands up, don't worry, there, most of you. If you've been with us, then you know that we like to walk through books of the Bible together one verse at a time. We've been in the book of Colossians for the past three months, um, but today we're going to take a break from our normal routine, and we're going to talk about a particular topic that is um, of great importance right now, not just for this church, but for the nation at large, and probably for the whole world. And so I've entitled today's message, Being the Church in the Midst of an Economic Recession or During an Economic Recession. Um, People are in a panic right now. And part of that is because um, when it all comes down to it, no matter what we say, we trust in our money. God is not God. Our money is God. We look to it for our status, our security, our provision, We look to money for everything, especially in this country. And what's going on right now is a lot of people's God is getting getting a a pretty fair whooping from the times. I mean, people are watching their God diminish in value to about the tune of 40%. Everything that they've laid up for themselves and put their trust in is is going away. And now people are getting a very good lesson in what it means to lay your your house on a, a poor foundation, as Jesus said. And so... What I want to say to you is, look, as the church, I want you to understand you and I were created for times like this. We were created to be effective witnesses of Jesus Christ precisely in times like this. So what I want to do is pick our heads up as we head into 2009 for what promises to be a very challenging and difficult year. It may be that Jesus would find faith here that would spill out as we give ourselves to him. Luke chapter 10, one of my favorite stories here, often called the parable of the good Samaritan. The Bible does not ever call this guy the good Samaritan. It calls him a Samaritan. We'll get to that later, all right? But let's read. Now behold, there was a lawyer who stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, Jesus, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, now this is what, I love this, here comes a story. And, and let's be very clear about what's happening here with the story Jesus is about to tell. Bless you. This man asks, rather insincerely, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you're an expert in the law. What does the Bible say? And you know what I love about that is Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, just, just kind of give it your best shot as long as you're sincere. God understands your heart. He accepts that. No, Jesus points him back to the Bible. And he says, look, if you want to, to get an accurate answer to that question, you just ask insincerely how it is human beings come to inherit eternal life. You had better keep your Bible open and don't trust your, your modern opinions or the opinions of your friends. Bless you, all of you. And many future sneezes. Bless you all. Um, you had better open up your Bible and get the right answer. And what I love about this is, and no one talks about this part, this guy answers, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh, you know, actually, that was just the Old Testament. Something new is going on right now. No. Jesus looks at him and says, you, actually, that's the right answer. Which, that, that messes theologians up because they... They, you know, they don't know what to do with that when it sounds like Jesus is saying you inherit salvation or, or eternal life by your works. They don't know what to do with that stuff. What we're going to do is keep reading the story because there's a lot of help in here. But be very clear here. This guy asks one question, and then when Jesus says you've just answered correctly, do this and you'll live, he knew what was going on. He understood that Jesus had just sized him up. He was trying to size up Jesus. Let me test this guy. You, you know, you're going around preaching. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? How well, Jesus, do you know the law? Because I've, I've been watching your program and your disciples, and I don't know if your church is a good church. So I, how, what do you, how well do you know the law? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, well, you tell me. You're the expert. And the guy gets the right answer, and Jesus says, great. Now do that and live. But see, this guy is only interested in keeping his religion and his interactions with God on a strictly scholarly level. So he wants to quibble again about definitions and words. Well, well, who's my neighbor? Theologians love to do that. Have you ever, not all of them, but some of them. That's, that's what we do. We're very good at keeping things at a, at a safe, theological, academic level, completely divorced from any real people and real needs. And Jesus will not let us do it. He doesn't let this guy do it. Do this and live. Who's my neighbor? Okay, here's the story. This is an answer. Let me say, this is, an, this is an interpretation from the Son of God himself about what it means and looks like. Are you ready for this, Christian? Look at me. To love your neighbor as yourself. That thing we claim to do, here it is. You ready to pay attention? Here we go. Jesus tells this guy a story. I was preaching so hard, my page turned. Here, here we go. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, uh, this messes with theologians too, right? Because if you have an NIV, it says now a, a guy happened to be passing by. Same thing. But you know, you know those people who like to say, oh, everything is foreordained from the beginning of the universe. And that, you know, I, I believe some of that too. But, but, but Jesus says by chance. Just <laughs> by chance, a priest was going down that road. 
He didn't know that God had foreordained that by chance. He would, Chris Daroko. He was going down that road, and when he saw this guy, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw this man, passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, don't know if it's a good Samaritan, just a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, if you know much about the Bible, compassion is a Jesus word, meaning this word is only used in the Bible, check it out for yourself, to refer to Jesus in the Gospels. He had compassion on this person. So Jesus is telling a story here about a person who is a Samaritan who actually has compassion on another individual. And I'll let you figure out who Jesus might have in mind as the Samaritan. But we'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this guy was. When he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two. Now, if you have a, a new international version, your, your Bible will say he took out two silver coins. How many of you have that one there? Okay, the original Greek word that was translated into two silver, silver coins, or rather silver coins, is denarii. It was a specific kind of coin. A denarii at that time represented a full day's wages. Okay, so two denarii is what this guy took out. Let me make that relevant for us. Let's say you work a full eight-hour day at $20 an hour. That's $160 for one day times two, $320. This guy took out $320. Okay, are you all with me? A little more meaningful to you, right? What's a denarii? Okay, here we are. So verse 34, he set this guy on his own animal. Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And watch this, as if $320 wasn't enough. Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Verse 36, here's the question. Jesus, he's always got a question for us when we have a question for him, right? Now watch this. Expert in the law. Professing Christian, look up at me. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer is caught. He's got to answer the question. To make matters worse, Jesus made the hero of this story a Samaritan. You understand the tension between Jews and Samaritans. There's no way the Samaritan could possibly have been a better person than someone like the lawyer, like the Levite, like the the priest. There's no way. And this guy, though, he he understands, and he, he looks at Jesus and he says, verse 37, the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. You understand what's going on here? It, it, this is equivalent to Jesus looking at a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan telling a story about a former slave that took out all he had to live on and took care of, of the, the deputy sheriff, the racist deputy sheriff in, in you know, Jacksonville, Tennessee, and, and then looking at the guy and saying, which one kept the law of God? And, and making the grand wizard of the KKK look back at him and say, um, that guy. 
the guy that I have convinced myself all my life that I am better than him. He, was, he kept the law. And then Jesus looks at him. Look at this. I mean, just uh, get the picture here. Jesus looks at him and says, one more time. Don't just leave here with the right answer. Redemption Hill, look at me. Don't just leave here today with the right answer. Go. In fact, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Acts chapter 4. We're going to get to see a picture here of how the early church took teaching like this to heart and actually applied it to the need that they found in-house among their own membership. Now watch Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Why? If you keep reading, it tells you. Watch this. There was not a needy person among them because most of these people were very wealthy and they all kept their jobs and, and no one ever came into a place of need. It doesn't say that in your Bible either, does it? No, but there still were no needy persons among them and there's a reason why and the Bible tells us. Let's go back and read the Bible Correctly. Let's read what it actually does say. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for, or because, as many as were owners. So, so Christianity, far from some of the stuff that goes on in the communes where you know, no one owns a pair of shoes and, and you put it on and leave it at the door for the next person who's going to go out. And this is, as many as were owners, okay, Christianity is not against ownership and and the better parts of capitalism and all that sort of thing. It is against the worst parts, but not ownership. Are you all with me? Those who were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, now the Levites are about to get some redemption here, right? I think Luke, who also wrote the other account of the Samaritan, I think he, you know, let me, let me, let me give these guys a, a good guy, right? So Joseph called Barnabas a native of Cyprus, which I won't get into this, but everything here is important. It's important that he's a Levite. It's important that he's a native of Cyprus. These things have meaning. Robert Greene would unpack that for you for another 20 minutes. I will not. Verse 37. So he's, he's better than I am at that, and, and we got to get out of here pretty soon. Verse 37, sold, this guy sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, there were no needy persons in this church because from time to time, people who had wealth in the form of frozen assets actually went as far as selling those things, liquidating those frozen assets, and then giving the money away, bringing it to their church and saying, here, pastor, if anyone presents a need anytime soon, take this. You know, we don't need it right now and times are hard, so if we can trust that God will be there for, for us tomorrow, 
We don't have to put our trust in this stuff that we had laid up for ourselves. Why don't you use it to meet people's urgent needs today? Listen, do you know, do you know that it's possible for Christians to live like this? No matter when they live or where they live, did you know that this was possible? It only requires a few things that we are usually not willing to do. Things that we will talk about today. Things that we hope will challenge us today. Things that hopefully we take a few practical steps toward doing, not just getting the right answer. You could say these people that had frozen assets in a sense in the form of stocks, bonds, bank accounts, whatever the case, they sold them. Doesn't say they sold all of it. Doesn't say, it, doesn't, it doesn't tell you what they did. It just says that they had extra. Some people had none. And the way they understood the gospel and what it implied, and how it should be applied, and what it required of them because of what they had been given, the way they understood to whom much is given, much is expected, the way they understood love your neighbor as yourself was, I need to sell some of this stuff and give it to people to meet their urgent needs today. That is not how the typical evangelical Christian in America understands the word of God. Oh, we get the right answer. Oh, we've got your answer. Ask me a Bible question. I've got your answer. Watch me between Sunday afternoon and Saturday night. I I don't know that if you had to interpret my life, you would get the right answer a second time. We're good at that. Jesus wants more. Jesus expects more. Jesus deserves more. Um, And I I don't know about you, but uh, I'm one of those guys that says, on my watch, he's going to get it. I mean, that's, I, I've got I've to be, be willing to repent and see where my heart is off, and so do you, and we're going to help each other do that here at Redemption Hill. Can anyone say amen? I know, I know that's tough, amen or oh my, as they say, uh, because everyone wants to be a part of a church like that. Let's be honest. How many of you want to be a part of a church like that, right? See, that's what I mean. No one wants to be Barnabas, but everybody wants to be there to see him do it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's, that's just the way it is. That's the way I am. That's the way you are. But by God's grace, listen, look up at me again. We can be different. And as we head into 2009, I, I fully expect that we are going to get many opportunities to meet urgent needs. Um, I, I think what we're going to do here as a church, and I, again, I'll have to get this ratified by my favorite bald guy here in Robert Green, um, and, pro- and by you guys as well. But what we want to do is establish, we don't know what the name will be, but right now, let's put a placeholder name in there, a Barnabas Fund. Um, for, for any of those of us who fall into need, we want that need to just be temporary. Um, and so those of us who have, we're hoping that we will give um, so that that thing is there for those who need it. And it, is it going to be a completely unregulated welfare system? No, of course not. The Bible speaks against something like that. There's no wisdom in that. Um, needs have to be assessed, evaluated, determined whether or not they're legitimate, and conditions have to be set to make sure that you're not just helping someone to become irresponsible with the help that you give them. But uh, you, you have to understand that this is something biblical and this is something we can do for each other. Now, that's how we can meet needs for one another. It just requires our attitude toward our possessions and our money to be slightly different than it maybe is today. These guys, it says here, if you, if you look again in verse... Go back up a little bit for me. 
Verse 32 is very instructive. The full number of disciples who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. See, they were owners, but no one said or considered or treated as, this is just my own to keep for me permanently. Right? So it's your stuff. You know, it's God's stuff, but it's your stuff too. I mean, it's yours. And, and it's, it's a difficult thing to look at your stuff, which you've earned or which you've been given, and say, I'm going to consider this as not being my own if it turns out that someone else needs it more than I do right now. Um, and I can help them. Very difficult. Because some of you are saying, well, wait a minute. If I have more, then it looks like there's going to be more of a burden and responsibility placed on me. Yes, welcome to Christianity. To whom much is given, much is expected. It, that will never change. Okay? And realistically speaking, if we compare ourselves to the entire world, all of us in here pretty much are, are pretty rich. We're all pretty wealthy. Half the world lives on less than a dollar a day. We're all pretty wealthy. At least in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people. So when the Bible speaks about the rich, I know you thought that didn't include you, but it does. And it will not go well for rich people who hoard their wealth in days like this. Are you all with me? All right, so that's how we can begin to take care of each other. Something like a Barnabas fund, or people call it a benevolence fund, or whatever the case is. Um, and there is no Wizard of Oz contributing to that. It's us. Okay? Us. If I were to quote Barack Obama, he would say, we are the people we have been waiting for, right? No, it, it, it's, uh, y'all don't take that the wrong way. No one, no one else is going to be doing this because God has in mind a transformation in our own hearts that comes in part by giving. All right, so let's take a look back at Luke now at some of my favorite story here with the little time that we have left. I will be finishing 15, 18 minutes actually. It's 10.57. You'll be done at 11.15. Here's what I want to do. Very simply, I want to answer three questions with the time we have left. Number one, what kind of church do we need to be going into 2009 in light of the present crisis? Number two, how do we become that kind of church? Number three, practically speaking, how can you do your part? You all with me? What kind of church do we need to be? How can we become that kind of church? What can you do to do your part? Very simple. Uh, number one, what kind of church do we need to be? I'll give you the answer, and we'll find it in the story of the Samaritan. We need to be the kind of church that maximizes its resources to meet urgent, material needs. There are going to be so many material needs thrown at us, not just among our own membership today, but in the world outside of these walls. We have to be prepared to meet those needs together. Let's look at this in the story. Jesus begins to, to talk about this Samaritan. And this guy is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho in verse 30. He meets, or this, this is the, the victim rather. This guy falls among robbers. They strip him. He's got no clothes. They beat him. He's, he's within an inch of his life. They left him there for dead. And now a bunch of people are going to come by him. One is a priest. Now the interesting thing is priests in this day were kind of like the medical guys. You know, there were some physicians kind of a thing, but the, the priest would be the one that everybody came to if they were unhealthy or unclean, and the priest would look them over and say, here's what you should do. 
give them a prescription, sacrifice this animal, stay away from that person, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And by all means, don't come to church because then you'll get everybody else unclean, right? So they would actually do these things. And yet here's someone who's supposed to be, in a sense, in that field and he walks right by. A Levite does the same thing. These are the religious guys you would expect to have compassion, right? And they don't seem to have it. All of a sudden, a Samaritan comes by and the response is different. Now, here's what I want to point out to you. I'd never noticed this before yesterday. I've read this many times, but I'd never noticed this before yesterday. It says in verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Verse 32, so likewise, which could mean by chance, again, or just happened, a Levite was going. Watch this, though. Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed, as he traveled. This word here implies that this was something intentional. This guy set out on a journey and, watch this, as such, he prepared for it. What I'm telling you is we are going to have to be the kind of church that prepares for a journey into 2009 because we are going to encounter need that maybe we weren't expecting if we didn't get someone to pick our heads up and think about it ahead of time. But I'm telling you, we're going to encounter need of, of a kind that we may not have encountered yet as a people in 2008. It is coming. Already we've had some of our own members lose their jobs. People are losing their homes in record numbers, um, at least outside of this church. There's a lot of need to be met, and Christians are called to help meet those needs. Whether people, listen, and we're, helped, we're, we're called to help meet the needs of people whether they believe what we do or not. Right? We, we, don't, we don't get to cast aside people just because they're not Christians. We don't know anything about the victim here. In fact, we don't know even if this guy is a Jew. We know he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, but the Bible doesn't say he's a Jew. He might be. But it doesn't matter. We're not told who this guy is because it doesn't matter. He's in need. That's what we're told. We are called to help meet people's needs when they are in need, regardless of what else might be true about them. Now, watch this very carefully. This Samaritan prepares. He, he encounters need, and all of a sudden, watch what he's able to do. And, and by the way, I, I know the Levite and the priest look like really bad guys here, but can I just say something to kind of, in, in their defense, this was a very dangerous stretch of road. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but this, this was actually known to the Jews in this day as the way of blood. Uh, when you went down this road at night, it was like walking through a dark alley uh, where the, I, I don't know, there was no street light. There's no street light. You were taking a chance with your life. Um, it was a shortcut, you know, so you were taking a chance with your time if you were to go by another route, but this was a very dangerous place. Um, Somali pirates used to hang out on strips like this. You know, bandits, raiders. This is, where they, this is where they were. They were coming to steal your oil tanker or whatever the case was, right? You, you didn't want to go down here for no reason and you probably didn't carry much when you went. That says something about this Samaritan because he's carrying quite a bit. And let me just say that the priest and the Levite, in their defense, would have been risking their life to stop. Whoever did that to this guy is probably still around. Right? Because he wasn't dead yet. So this couldn't have happened too long ago. Are you all with me? 
He was taking a chance. These guys would be taking a chance with their life in order to help a perfect stranger. And they didn't do it. And so we can look down on them in one sense. And Jesus is obviously trying to say, I expect more of people like this. And they didn't do what I expect them to do. But you know what? I can understand. I can understand why you don't stop for the person on the road who obviously needs help. You're busy. So am I. I can understand. Um, But we might be in the first two people in this story. That's, you know, just to let... Now, the Samaritan... The Samaritan stops. He has compassion. Right? He bandages up this guy's wounds. Let me just take a moment to open your eyes. As to, are you interested in what kinds of needs Christians should be focusing on and trying to meet as they go through, say, a journey like 2009 in a difficult time? Watch this. He went to him, in verse 34, and bound up his wounds. Health care. See, see there's, these things are spiritual, right? But you wouldn't think about that. It's just, you know, let me help someone with their medical bills. Let me help someone with their wounds, right? So he bandages up his wounds. Christians should be concerned about health care for those who need it. He poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. Christians should be willing to give people transportation, right? Health care, transportation. This is all very seemingly, what, natural stuff. Do you know that these are the big things that our city governments are battling with, trying to offer people? Did you, I mean, did you know that one of the reasons our our government is having such a hard time figuring out how to fund everything it has to do and why they have to justify raising your taxes so much is because Christians aren't doing what they should be doing? Did you know that? Now, we're good again at complaining about the government. Oh, y'all don't want to say amen. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right, I've learned to be secure as a preacher. I'm not, not waiting for the, the amen corner, but pick somebody on your row, just, you know, just to, you, you be the designated amener on your row. Don't be a Samaritan, don't, be, be brave. He takes a risk, now I want you to, he risks his life, right, and brought all of his resources to the table. Now keep in mind, these were things that he packed on a journey for himself. He thought he would need them for himself. And yet he found it within his heart to risk his life in order to take his hard-earned resources, I'm assuming, but his resources, and use them on somebody to meet basic needs such as health care, transportation. He took him to an inn and took care of him. Guy was naked, so obviously this includes food, clothing, and shelter. You all with me so far? That's just what preachers say when they lost their place in the Bible. Okay, just, just letting you all in, into my world here. <laughs> verse, verse 35, and the next day he takes out two denarii, okay, $320 about, gives it to the guy, pays this guy's medical bills, pays his hotel bill, and says, hey, you know what? Um, <clears throat> I could say I've done enough. I've been a good Samaritan. This guy goes as far as promising a follow-up visit. He promises to enter into a relationship with this guy with continued involvement that may cost him more. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to stop, and he certainly didn't have to promise his follow-up visit. He did them both. Why? I, I suppose the better question would be, why don't we? Right? That would be more relevant for you. I mean, we could talk about the Samaritan all day long, but why don't we do these kinds of things? 
Maybe we do. For those of you who do, for the one or two or five of you, forgive me, I'm sorry. And for the rest of us, anybody want to follow Jesus? Do you just want to come to church? If you do, it's okay. I mean, we've got time to work on that. But anybody want to follow Jesus? I, I do, and I, I find that oftentimes uh, I'm missing out on some of this stuff. Healthcare, transportation, food, clothing, shelter, financial assistance, the promise of a relationship with continued involvement that may turn out to be even more expensive and require more of what we had put aside for ourselves. Welcome to real Christianity, especially in difficult times. That's the kind of church we need to be. How do we become that kind of church? Very quickly, um, Jesus wanted the lawyer to become that kind of person. I've got seven minutes. Jesus wanted the lawyer to become that kind of person. The way that you and I are going to become the kind of Christian or the kind of church we need to be is going to be by the same means that Jesus employs to change the heart of this expert in the law. You wouldn't think that this is the way to do it. But would you believe me if I told you that in the beginning of this conversation, Jesus points this guy to the letter of the law. And he says, okay, you want to inherit eternal life? You want to know what this is all about? You want to be with God forever? You want to become like him? What does the law say? And the guy gets the right answer. He perfectly quotes the standard to which God holds all of us as human beings. Love God perfectly and love your neighbor appropriately. That's all. Just love God perfectly. <laughs> and as the guy says it, you, I mean, I'm sure he very quickly got past patting himself on the back for having the right answer when Jesus said, now, right, that's the right answer. Do this and you'll live. And then immediately the guy realizes, wait a minute, if that's actually what God requires of me, then that means I don't measure up. And I don't know all of you very well, but I feel pretty comfortable saying, neither do I and neither do you. Stop me now if I'm wrong. I mean, you know yourself better, better than I do. Anybody. Measure up. Okay. So he now wants to justify himself. Now watch what's happening. He senses a gap between the letter of the law and what God requires of him and the level to which he has lived up to it. There's a gap. And he feels threatened now. He's thinking, wait a minute, I, was, I thought I was pretty safe in terms of my standing before God, but now I'm starting to think that maybe, maybe it's not a good idea to believe my own press. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought. And if, if this, making up this difference is required for me to actually inherit eternal life, ah, wait a minute. He doesn't now, watch this, he doesn't bring himself to God to find out how he might truly be justified, how that gap might be decreased or fixed. What he does is, instead of seeking to be conformed to the standard that God has set, he seeks to conform the standard to his own life. That's what it means to justify yourself. If you write justify something on a computer, you've got a standard which is the right margin. Something doesn't quite line up, and you're lining it up. Does that make sense? Now, this guy says, there's a standard God has set for me. I don't line up, and he's trying to justify himself. Problem is, is instead of allowing God to make him as righteous as he needs to be by God's own chosen means, he seeks to lower the standard God has set for him and justify himself as he presently is. 
just like us. Our only interest at times in coming to church is to find a religion that already approves of what we're doing. That proves, you, you understand what I mean? Just, just tell me something that makes me feel like I'm already doing everything I need to do. And, and you can go. You can go to places where that's going to happen. I mean, it, it doesn't take much. You just turn on your TV, right? And, and I won't name names today. I might do that at some point because Paul names names, right? <laughs> but I'm not going to do it today. I've got to at least wait until my pastor comes back before I take that chance. Um, but when it comes to how we're going to become this kind of, of church, here's what Jesus does for this guy. He tells him a story. Whereas he first started out pointing him to the letter of the law, this time he points him to the story of a guy who perfectly kept it. Do you all, do you all see what happens here? Jesus says, okay, I need to change this guy's heart. You might just be interested in testing me, but I'm actually interested in giving you the eternal life that you just asked me about. And, and his means or his way of doing that is to take this guy's eye off of the rules that he thinks he has to keep and has been keeping sufficiently. And he says, listen, listen, if you're really going to inherit eternal life, you'll never measure up this way. But let me tell you a story about a guy who perfectly kept the law. Oh, and if... If you'll hear this, God will rewire your heart. What's it going to take for us to become the kind of church we need to be? One that maximizes its resources to meet urgent material needs? God's going to have to rewire our hearts. And then you and I are going to have to rethink our priorities. God is going to have to rewire our hearts. We're going to have to rethink our priorities. And the way that God is going to rewire our hearts is by telling us the same old story of the guy who perfectly loved, who was the perfect neighbor, who was the actual good Samaritan, who was the living, breathing good news, the one who had compassion on those who were beaten within an inch of their life by their own sin. Who came not just, and who didn't just risk his life to help us, but lost it. Didn't just risk possible danger, but certain death to give us the life that we needed. The Bible says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that though He was rich, resources, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. He emptied out His spiritual resources to those who were spiritually bankrupt. He did it at the cost, not just the risk of his life, but the cost of his life, knowing full well that that would be the cost. And he did it so that you and I might become wealthy in heavenly and spiritual resources. And Paul quotes that scripture in 2 Corinthians to a group of people that were well-to-do, like 21st century Americans. And he said, now give to meet the material needs of other people. Why? Because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he did with his spiritual resources. Now do the same with your material resources. Help people get health care, transportation. Give them financial assistance. Help them have food, clothing, and shelter. Give them the promise of a relationship with continued involvement that may cost us a whole lot more. You, not someone else, you, me. Let's do that. 
Is that too much? Is that asking too much? You're free to choose another religion. No one will stop you except the Holy Spirit. But if this is what you're all about, if this is what you've signed up for, then this is what it is. My job is to open the Bible and show you what Christianity really is, what following Jesus is really all about. And then hopefully, our job is to demonstrate that to a watching world. We need to be a church, a church that maximizes its resources in order to meet urgent material needs. That's going to happen as we hear the gospel and believe it more deeply than we ever have. What can you do practically to help? Two things. Number one, you can give. I would suggest 10% of your income. That's, that's usually what Christians have done. Many people call it the tithe. I would say give 10% of your income. That would cover the operational, church, the operational expenses of the church as well as help to meet needs both in-house and, can't very well say out-house, right? But in the world outside of these doors, right? The other thing, that, and that might be, you know, take your time with that and talk to somebody about it if it sounds like strange or, or whatever the case is. The other thing that I would say is, and, and you know, I didn't think about this at first, but if, if, you, if you find yourself in a place of need, please tell us. Info at redemptionhill.org. Um, speak to the people in your community group throughout the week. Please tell us if you've got a need. Um, it, it would be wrong for you to hide that and deny some of us the opportunity to give. I, I mean, my heart is, I don't think anybody should have to, um, I don't think anyone in here should have to go into debt to meet an urgent need if, if one of us has extra. Why should we let our brothers and sisters sell themselves into some form of contractual slavery when we have it to help? Right? That's, the kind of, that's the kind of witness we want. So let, let's, I'm done. Let's pray. I keep my promises, right? 11.15. Lord, I can't remember everything I said. But I, I do pray that you would help us to not just get the right answer here, but to be like the Samaritan and really to be like you and to show the kind of mercy and compassion that meets urgent needs. Help us to be a church that maximizes its resources in order to meet urgent material needs as we hear and believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Good Samaritan, more deeply than we ever have before. And Lord, help us to give, overcoming our greed, and help us to let people know when we have a need, overcoming our pride. We ask all these things in your name, by your spirit. Amen.